Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed. In today's top stories, officials from VIGL say they are committed to rebuilding the Randall Doc James racetrack. Experts are warning of a supercharged Atlantic hurricane season. A man is arrested after attempting to smuggle migrants into St. John. These stories and more on today's WTJX Newsfeed. From the Virgin Islands Public Broadcasting System Studios on St. Thomas, this is the WTJX Newsfeed with Marcelina Ventura Douglas. Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed, bringing you the latest news and updates throughout our community. An official involved in the rebuild of the Randall Doc James racetrack recently said the $20 million project would fail without approval of a license to operate a casino to serve as the primary revenue source to sustain operations and fund up to $1.3 million in annual race purses. That official is Andrew Dubuque, Caravel Group Managing Partner and VIGL Operations Chief Financial Officer. VIGL has applied to the Virgin Islands Casino Control Commission for an initial casino license to operate a racino at the track and is awaiting the decision by its commissioners. We couldn't start construction um, in earnest on the casino without that license. That's really been the trigger over the past, you know, since we signed the amendment. That's, we need that to start. We need a bunch of other things. CZM and DPNR need, needed to weigh in, and we have those. This is the last piece of the puzzle. Uh, after this, there's nothing stopping us from starting. Pressure from the community and stakeholders to include Governor Albert Bryan Jr. has been placed on VIGL to begin constructing the horse racing structures unrelated to the Racino. These people, we've given them every chance, and I'm at the point now, and I've asked them point blank, just give up the contract. You know, you could give up the contract, just give it up. We won't charge you a dime, we're good. Just give us back our track because the odds of them getting this built is nil to none. Governor Bryan's statements were made earlier in the month in response to a statement by VIGL stating they were awaiting a $5 million subsidy that they have yet to receive from the government. Governor Bryan said that statement was rooted in fantasy and fiction. We negotiated a contract with them in good faith and then they went to the legislature and tried to get the law to guarantee them something that the contract did not. Senator Javon James Sr., sponsor of the appropriation bill enacted in September of 2022, said the second amended franchise agreement between the government and VIGL calls for the funds to be released 90 days after construction begins. Now, when I pass 34-0340 with the support of my colleagues, I did not include 90 days in the language of the bill. However, the contract supersedes the law. James said the language is clear in the franchise agreement when it comes to giving VIGL control in terms of construction. However, he says VIGL has discretion when it comes to which facilities it will begin building as a part of the overall project. They, they have the right to decide whether they build the casino first, the racino first, or the running surface. The running surface is not within the conversation of VIGL. Now, if the agreement said that the running surface had to be built before the Racino, now that's different. They would have been in breach of contract. So VIGL is in the, in, the, in the right when it comes to choosing which part of the track they want to build first. But deciding how they're going to get the $5 million is not determined by them. 
In response to Governor Bryant's comments, Dubuque maintains that the $5 million could be used towards the overall project to include construction of the Racino. Of a large $20 million project, you know, again, another $15 million of it is, is ours. And we're happy to spend that money. And we have money to spend on this project and we fully intend to do it. Though construction of the grandstands and other structures could take another year after the Racino gets built, Dubuque says VIGL plans to have interim horse racing on or about the day the Racino opens. Earlier today, the Virgin Islands Fire and Emergency Medical Services responded to the scene of the closed Beachcomber Hotel on St. Thomas, where they were met with the structure fully engulfed in flames. Jonelle Alexis Jackson, Public Information Officer for the department, has the details. On Tuesday, February 27, 2024, the VIFEMS was quickly dispatched to a structural fire at the defunct Beachcomber Hotel. The emergency call was received at around 10.40 a.m., prompting an immediate response from the hotel company, Units 101 and 207. Upon their arrival, the first responders conducted a swift assessment to gain access to the building, finding the second story engulfed in flames. Through the skilled and coordinated efforts of our firefighters, the blaze was successfully brought under control within 15 minutes showcasing their dedication to protecting our community and its residents from harm. We are relieved to report that there were no injuries reported in connection with this incident. Following the fire's containment, the prevention unit has been notified and is currently investigating the cause of the fire. Crew members also responded to a structural fire yesterday around 5.30 at the Tropical Bliss Spa in Crown Bay Center on St. Thomas. Upon arrival, crew from Units 101 and 207, alongside the Virgin Islands Police Department, encountered significant flames emanating from the back of the spa. The coordinated efforts between the departments resulted in the successful containment of the fire within 10 minutes. That's according to a press release from the Fire and Emergency Medical Services. The fire marshal was contacted to begin investigation into the cause and assess the extent of the damages. No injuries were reported due to the incident. Investigation also continues into the cause of the fire on Solberg Hill last Friday, where crew was able to contain a house and shed engulfed in flames within 30 minutes from their arrival. The structures were both lost to the fire and no injuries were reported. Weather experts are warning of a serious supercharged Atlantic hurricane season this year due to a combination of climate factors. Ryan Chambers, meteorologist with the National Weather Service in the San Juan office, says it's still too early to say, but current trends are cause for concern. At the moment, we haven't had any official guidance from NOAA that will come out about mid-May, but models are suggesting with a trend towards like greater than normal precipitation values and with El Nino transitioning into a neutral pattern and also the sea surface temperatures being quite warm, which serves as fuel for the hurricanes. With those variables combined, it's likely that there will be a lot of storm activity. The Atlantic hurricane season is traditionally recognized from June 1st until the end of November. Chambers says current conditions in the territory do put us at risk. It has been quite warm across the waters, so any storms that do come nearby us 
they will benefit from that warmth. But like you even mentioned, it is too soon to point out that our area is at risk of being affected from a strong storm. In the meantime, he says residents need to stay prepared. Make sure you have, like, anyone has a plan what to do if we did have a terrible storm to make sure to have some resources that are necessary for survival. And this is even the, the basic things like water to drink and extra food to have canned goods and to have a plan with your family and community what should be done if something terrible happens. The St. Croix Central High School dismissed students early yesterday due to inclement weather conditions that were stated to have impacted school facilities and operations. That's according to a notice from the Department of Education. Heavy rainfall led to flooding on the campus and the decision was made for students to receive virtual instruction today while the campus was assessed and cleaned to prepare for in-person learning tomorrow. Customs and Border Protection agents arrested a man attempting to smuggle illegal migrants into St. John by way of Tortola while patrolling the coastline in the area of Leinster Bay in St. John on the evening of February 23rd. According to court documents, Marine interdiction agents spotting a boat near the shoreline of Tortola and using their night vision goggles, agents say they followed the vessel, who had no navigation lights on, as it journeyed from Tortola across international waters and into Leinster Bay near the Annaberg ruins. After the boat turned around and attempted to head back to Tortola, agents activated their own lights and sirens, commanding the vessel to stop. The vessel's captain, identified as Lorenzo Charles, a citizen of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, was taken into custody and the boat was then towed into St. Thomas. Agents found five migrants on board to include three Indian nationals, including a minor, one Argentinian national, and a national of the Dominican Republic. All six, to include Charles, were determined not to be citizens of the United States. Charles seemingly admitted guilt upon being questioned. He told a Homeland Security investigation special agent that he borrowed $4,000 from someone who he did not name and was later contacted to clear the bill. According to documents, he met the person who had loaned him the money at a location in Weston Tortola and saw five passengers being helped aboard the vessel. Charles also admitted to knowing the correct way to enter the United States and reportedly also confessed to having smuggled people at least three times before this trip. This run was reportedly intended to clear the remaining $1,000 balance of his debt to the unnamed individual. The passengers, when questioned, said they had paid someone other than Charles to be taken from Tortola to St. John. The Virgin Islands Department of Human Services Office of Child Care and Regulatory Services has introduced increases in the monthly child care subsidies for participants in their Child Care Development Fund program, also known as the Block Grant. The subsidies now represent reimbursement at the 100th percentile of the cost care based upon the territory's 2022 market rate survey and narrow cost analysis. Assistant Commissioner Carla Benjamin says the increase allows families to have better access to childcare options. Currently, uh, we are serving 466 children, and we anticipate that with the increase in subsidies, we're hoping across all age ranges to add by the end of this fiscal year about 500 more children, and we're hoping that the 
increase in subsidies will also bring on board additional childcare providers, which would widen the pool of available providers for families. New childcare subsidies include infants from birth to 11 months at $600, toddlers ages 1 to 2 years at $675, preschoolers ages 3 to 4 years at $725, and school-age children from 5 to 12 years old at $429. Tied to this subsidy increase, Assistant Commissioner Benjamin says the department also recently unveiled their Essential Workers Program. Any family who uh, whose profession is considered to be an essential service, if they're considered to be an essential worker, they're categorically eligible, which means regardless of income, although this is an eligibility-based program, if you're an essential worker, you're categorically eligible. The only caveat is, depending upon how high your salary is, there may be there may be a copay of $100 a child or $150 a child, but uh, they would qualify just by virtue of the fact that they are. Um, are an essential worker. And we've also been trying to let the public know that we also support non-traditional childcare hours, such as overnight and on weekends, which is something that previously um, was not being utilized a lot. So we're just trying to let the community know that the Office of Child Care Regulatory Services and the CCDF program, which, which a lot of people know as Block Grant, we're here, there's funding to assist. So if you have questions, just reach out to one of our offices and we'll uh, walk you through the process and see whether or not you're eligible. For more information about eligibility or providers wanting to join the program, visit the department's website at dhs.vi.gov and navigate to the Office of Child Care and Regulatory Services page or contact the department's offices on the respective islands. The government has finalized the purchase of the first bank building in Christiansted St. Croix on behalf of the Office of the Lieutenant Governor. The 34th legislature appropriated funds in a supplemental budget specifically intended for the purchase of the building at a cost of $1.3 million. The purchase includes the designated parking area located on plot numbers 12, 13, and 14 of King Street in downtown Christiansted. That amounts to 0.36 acres of property. In a release, the Office of the Lieutenant Governor shared that the property will house the Division of Banking, Insurance, and Financial Regulation, the Division of Corporations and Trademarks, the Office of the Tax Collector, the Passport Acceptance Facility, and the Virgin Islands SHIP Medicare Program. Cashiers will also be available at the location to receive payments for services rendered by the mentioned divisions. Enthusiastic St. Croix Middle School students competed in the 42nd Annual Math Counts Competition. Hosted by the Department of Education, St. Croix District Math Coordinator Juanita Bonique says four teams competed to see who would face off against the St. Thomas District winners. I'm proud of what happened. And um, so the team ranking that I have in front of me is that the Good Hope Country Day School won. And then second place went to Church of God Holiness Academy, followed by Ricardo Richards Elementary School, and then Pearl B K eight School, Pearl B Larson K eight School. Good Hope Country Day School eighth grader Teague Gleason was the number one individual winner, followed by his schoolmates Eric Summer and William Simon. Nala Hendrickson from the Church of God Holiness Academy, she got fourth place. Fifth was Nazir Joseph, Church of God Holiness Academy. 
6th is A.J. Morrow, and he's from the Good Hope Country Day School. Ms. Bonique says the competition between the students from the Good Hope Country Day School and the Church of God Holiness Academy came down to a matter of seconds. They applaud Church of God Holiness Academy for all the efforts they made because Good Hope Country Day ran 20, their points were 25.75 and Church of God Holiness was 25.25. So they did a very good effort to try to get, you know, up there. You know, so our hopes on March 21st, um, we will have the state competition here where St. Thomas will be coming over and we will have that competition at the RT Park right there at the University of the Virgin Islands. While in Washington, D.C., Governor Albert Bryan Jr. appeared on the Roland Martin Unfiltered Digital Daily Show. The discussion ranged from tourism, USVI rebuild, and his administration's push to bring major contractors to the territory to complete recovery projects. The discussion moved, however, on how institutional racism has affected the territory throughout the years, after questioning by co-host Dr. Greg Carr. What percentage of folk in the Virgin Islands are indeed in poverty? So we have a 30% poverty rate. One of the things that I always bring to people's attention to show how structural racism and institutional racism racism work. We live on an island 1,300 miles away from the mainland, but yet in every single way, our community mimics that of inner city African-Americans. Whether you look at the dropout rate, you look at the diabetes rate, the uh, incidence of stroke and heart attacks, you look at the education rate, you look at the crime, you look at the, the incarceration rates, they all mimic the same. How is that possible that we live in a completely different place but the policies are the same from the mainland and are creating the same situation. So it's, 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 it's almost like living proof that what we're doing is not happen chance. It's engineered. It's in, institutionalized. Antilly senior Madison Roy signed her letter of intent to play soccer at Leslie University last week. Teachers and coaches spoke at the signing ceremony praising Roy's accomplishments and giving her advice for the road ahead. Isabel Tear has that story. Applause filled the Antilles School Library on Friday as Madison Roy made her decision to play college soccer official. All right, Maddie, you can go ahead and sign that commitment letter. There we go. The commitment letter Roy signed was to Leslie University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which means that come this fall, Roy will be playing for their Division III women's soccer team as a defender. Kim Ballou, the director of middle and upper school at Antilles, spoke at the signing ceremony and praised Roy's commitment to her teammates, sportsmanship, and the long hours put into the sport. Athletic talent is only a piece of the puzzle. It's only a piece of achieving this level of success your dedication to your own progress, the commitment to your teammates, uh, that's what really landed you here today. Roy currently plays for three teams in the Virgin Islands, her high school team, the Massey Academy club team, and the Virgin Islands women's senior national team. But her athletic career really began as a child. Her father, Nate Roy, said they knew right away she was going to be an athlete. We've known Maddie was an athlete from the time she was a little kid, to be honest. She's always loved to compete, is a competitive kid, and uh, even as a little girl was fast, so we kind of assumed she'd be a bit of an athlete. 
In a pre-recorded video shown at Friday's event, soccer legend Mia Hamm congratulated Roy on her accomplishments, highlighting the fact that Roy was the youngest woman to be called up to play for the VI national team when she was 16 years old. You're the youngest player to compete on the U.S. Virgin Islands women's national team. Congratulations. Ham also offered some words of wisdom for Roy as she prepares to enter the next phase of her athletic career. Go after this dream and just know showing up every single day in training is what's going to set you apart. So I'm wishing you all the best, Maddie. Take care and good luck. Shortly before signing the commitment letter, Roy spoke to the group of friends, family, coaches, and teachers assembled at the ceremony. I feel incredibly supported by each and every one of you here. I always have. I'm really, really grateful to be able to play collegiate soccer, and I would not be able to do it without the support from the Virgin Islands and from all my coaches here. Roy intends to study psychology at Lesley University when she attends this fall. We're turning now to our regional report. A top court in London ruled today that two residents from Barbuda have the right to challenge the construction of an airstrip that critics say endangers fragile ecosystems and begun without any permits. The ruling by the Privy Council is considered a big win for John Mussington, a marine biologist, and Jacqueline Frank, a retired teacher, who launched a legal fight against the government of Antigua and Barbuda in July of 2018. The government of Antigua and Barbuda have argued that Mussington and Frank were busybodies who had no standing to mount a legal fight. The ongoing airport construction on Barbuda is part of a deal involving the government, the Barbuda Council, and PLH Limited, established by U.S. billionaire John Paul DeJoria, co-founder of the Paul Mitchell Hair Products Company. Also involved is U.S.-based Discovery Land Company, founded by Michael Meldman of Casa Amigos Tequila. The developers began work on the airstrip around September of 2017 after the government evacuated the entire island of Barbuda following Hurricane Irma. Mussington said the ruling would have significant implication for citizens of Antigua and Barbuda, who he says have long been suffering from the lack of transparency and accountability. We're turning now to our meteorologist for the territory's weather forecast. A pesky stationary front remains stalled just to our north and west, and this will be the focal point for a few more showers over the next 24 hours or so. Drier air will slowly feed in, and the probability of rainfall will be dropping later in the week. Through the overnight hours, clouds and partial clearing at times. There may be a passing shower. Temperatures in the low to mid-70s. Easterly winds at 10 to 15, partly sunny with still a 30 to perhaps 40% chance of a shower during the day tomorrow. High temperatures in the low to mid 80s. We'll see a few clouds tomorrow night, low to mid 70s. Sunshine, partly sunny at times on Thursday. There may be an isolated shower with temperatures in the low to mid 80s. Rip current risk is expected to be low to moderate at area beaches, particularly on St. Thomas during the day on Wednesday. For WTJX, I'm Precision Weather Meteorologist Ross Marley. We are at the end of today's WTJX news feed. I'm Marcelina Ventura Douglas. Join me every weekday at 5 p.m. And if you haven't already, be sure to download the WTJX app. If you missed a part of our news, you can listen to it on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 